HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. This is the 248th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top entertainment attorney who's based in Atlanta, Georgia, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, where we will be continuing our COVID-19 coverage, my solo dining delivery experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be able to pivot. Be willing to make changes and go in, different, in a different direction for the better good. As we go through life, we get accustomed to our routines and habits, and we get comfortable in our own ways. But the thing is, life is uncertain and circumstances change, and what used to work for us may no longer. So we need to be able to make adjustments in order to adapt to the present time, especially when there's a crisis at hand. So as we move forward, let's not be afraid to pivot and seek new and better solutions, as perhaps they could actually be blessings in disguise. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very honored to have my guest here with me on the show. It is Steve Sidman of Counsel at Carlton Fields, a leading provider of legal and consultative services to a broad spectrum of business clients. 
Steve has more than two decades of experience in the business of pop culture. He represents creative talent and entrepreneurial ventures from Michelin-starred chefs and restaurateurs to multi-platinum selling recording artists, songwriters, producers, and mixers to film and TV producers and on-screen talent. He has received many recognitions, including most recently on Georgia Trend Magazine's 2019 Georgia Legal Elite List. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sherry. It is an absolute honor to join you today. Well, I'm really honored to have you on the show and get to hear about your whole career. Um, you know, as I've been been reading about everything you've done, I'm like, I'm like, you're just a rock star attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that may be the most generous thing that anyone has ever said about me. Thank you. Well, that's, that's my very short fine. bio. <laughs> so, so, and my, I, oh, I, my, the one I, I, I first um, went through was still a short bio because there's much more to talk about. So, so why don't why don't you tell us a bit about your background and how you got into law and then into this this field of entertainment and working with chefs? Sure. Uh, well. I was I was born in North Carolina. I was born in Winston Salem, North Carolina, and I absolutely wanted to be anything other than an attorney uh, when I was growing up. My my, my father was an attorney. Uh, my older brother is an attorney, and there was just even though my father is my personal hero, it wasn't anything about his profession that seemed remotely interesting to me. I didn't really. He was a corporate tax attorney, and I didn't really have the capacity for understanding what it was that he did when I was younger. Um, I wanted to be a rock star um, from the time I was about 12 or 13 um, through today. I've been a musician of, of sorts and I really just wanted to be in rock bands. And so I was in you know, garage bands and what have you. And then when I went to college at Colgate University in central New York, um, I played in six or seven bands while I was there. I, I, I ran the concert board for seven out of the eight semesters I was there. I wrote the record reviews for the school paper. Um, wow. I was the local what, Columbia. What did you play? Sorry, interrupt. I, I am a, no, that's a, quite a was, I'm a formally trained drummer um, and a self taught guitarist. Oh, I, all, wow. all, all, all drummers are you know, frustrated lead guitarists or frustrated <laughs> lead singers. So, um, I was just, and I was just enamored with everything having to do with the music industry. Um, and I made a decision relatively, relatively early on in my in my college career that I wanted to be in the music industry. And if I couldn't be a rock star, which it became readily apparent pretty quickly that I was not going to be, I wanted to be around them in some way. So, you know, I did all of these things. I, I did a summer internship at Spin Magazine. Um, and when I went to college or rather when I graduated, I ended up going to work for TVT records, uh, which at the time was a, an independent record company of some note and doing what is known as A&R or artist and repertoire, uh, development for them. I, I was in the department that signed bands and I thought that that was just like, I, I thought I had arrived, you know, I was going to be making decisions or helping to make decisions about how artists were going to be identified and, and get their music out into the world. And, what I didn't realize is that I was going to be living in Manhattan in the early nineties and making $15,400 a year. So I got a little tired of, um, of eating, you know, freeze dried ramen and, and canned tuna for every meal of every day. And I started trying to find a way to put my, uh, 
extraordinarily expensive private education to use to use in trying to pay my parents back in some way. And I fell in with this small law firm on on Park Avenue called Bell, Doc, Levine and Hoffman. And they had a, a an entertainment department that represented the likes of Lily Tomlin and Luciano Pavarotti and the estate of Stan Getz and the estate of Dizzy Gillespie. And I, I just could not believe that people actually got paid to do this sort of stuff. So uh, as a way of kind of marrying my 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 educational background and my personal interests, I decided that I was going to go to law school, but only if I could do entertainment law. Um, my then uh, uh, fiance, now wife of, of almost 25 years, uh, she was from Atlanta. My parents had moved to Atlanta because of my dad's job, but I had never actually lived in Atlanta. But I made the deal with her that if I got into Emory, we would go there. I would go there. So I moved back down to Atlanta or moved to Atlanta in, in 94. And I ended up falling in with the mo- undeniably the most meaningful entertainment law practice that didn't exist in New York or LA or Nashville. Uh, it was the practice of a guy named Joel Katz. And I didn't leave for the next 16 years. I, he, he hired me the summer before I started Emory Law. And uh, hi, and I worked for him every year that I was in law school. He hired me right out of law school and I worked, I practiced law with him and his practice and its various iterations for the next 13, the first 13 years of my practice. Um, so that's how I came. That's, yeah, that's how I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming into the practice of law. I, I, well, I hear you. <laughs> it's, you know, my father's an attorney and um, I always admired him for running his own practice, but it never, I never had the desire to go to law school myself. Um, so, uh, but I, and I ended up in this industry, I guess, like kind of like everyone else by little by accident where I just followed a love and a passion for restaurants. And, and then, you know, I didn't set out to become a publicist and or have a podcast. So these things kind of just happen. But how so how did you then what led you to Carlton Fields? And when, when did you what was your first culinary client? So so I spent I started practicing law in 1997 and um, I spent the first you know, 10 years or so just doing transactional work in the entertainment industry, predominantly music stuff and, and within the music industry, predominantly representing creative types. So, you know, singers and songwriters and, and record producers and the like, and handling their various, various other issues. And, um, when you're a young lawyer, um, Oftentimes, as they say, you know, the, the bad stuff flows downhill. And so it's kind of out of necessity. My practice expanded beyond transactions in the music business to include things like book publishing deals and product endorsements and kind of you know, one-off TV deals and, and what have you. And um, one day I got a phone call from a college buddy of mine. This was about 2006 or 2007. Uh, and it was Nick Kakonis, who was the, you know, the founder, uh, along with Chef Grant Ackett's, of what is now known as the Alinea Group. Um, back then, it was known as Ackett's LLC, and it, was only, it only had Alinea in its portfolio. Well, I didn't know the first thing about fine dining, or the business of restaurants generally, generally, let alone fine dining. I mean, my exposure to fine dining or, or, or celebrity chefs or anything of the sort was merely as a as the most tenuous consumer 
of it. You know, I mean, I knew, I, I maybe knew who Chef Keller was, who Thomas Keller was, largely because I had read about him in some glossy magazine. And I knew about some celebrity chefs from just enjoying watching Stand and Stir shows on PBS, like, you know, Julia Child and Jacques Pepin or, or Paul Prudhomme or what have you. But I had no experience representing chefs or, or dealing with restaurants or anything of the sort. Nick called me. Uh, Nick and I had been in an, we had gone to Colgate together and we had stayed friends for throughout our adult lives. And um, Nick called me one day and he goes, hey, uh, you do book deals, don't you? I said, sure. Yeah, I mean, I had done a number of book deals for some of our some of our clients. Um, some of our more high profile clients. He's like, good. So um, I've invested in a restaurant, and we've been open about a year, and uh, we're going to do a cookbook deal. And I knew enough to ask this question. I said, well, you've been open a year. Do you really think there's going to be much of a demand for for a cookbook from a a restaurant <laughs> in Chicago that's been open for a year? He's like, yeah, well. We're about to be named the number one restaurant in the country by Gourmet Magazine. And I knew what Gourmet was, you know. And, yeah, and uh, Ruth, I'm, Joel, I'm, you... I'm, I'm, I'm smiling as you're telling the story, <laughs> right. knowing Nick and Olivia, and actually he sure. was on the show in episode 128. So, um, yeah, but continue on. It's, so, it's so, fabulous. So, so, Nick and his wife, Dagmara, and I, we had been friends for, you know, a decade or more. We had all gone to to Colgate together. And so I immediately got a little bit upset. I was like, wait, you've invested in a restaurant. It's about to be named the number one restaurant in the country. And you didn't call me to maybe write a check or do something. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> so it was the Alinea cookbook deal. Yeah. And the really cool thing about the Alinea cookbook deal, uh, which is something that Nick is you know, well on the record about is that it was a relatively groundbreaking structure from a publishing perspective, because it wasn't a traditional cookbook publishing it wasn't a book a traditional book publishing deal of any recognizable sort um nick and the company were going to fund the production of the of the book and the marketing of the book and really all with all that they needed anyone to do was to kind of you know put it in brick and mortar and and you know kind of normal retail channels as they say and everything else they were going to do themselves which has been the mo of Grant and Nick since the day they started doing business together. I mean, they just right. do everything themselves. And but the, the the deal structure that they wanted to deploy was something that was very recognizable to anyone that did uh, meaningful work in the in the music industry. So from a from a legal perspective, it wasn't that difficult. It wasn't that it, it wasn't that challenging to get your head around. But from a from a business perspective, it was truly groundbreaking. Um, and so I did that. I helped, I helped them with that deal. I helped negotiate the deal with 10 speed. And that was what I thought was pretty much that. And then about as Grant and Nick and the team were writing the book, um, that was when, that was when Grant was unfortunately diagnosed with, uh, with tongue cancer, right. with uh, cell carcinoma of the mouth and oral tongue. And after a bit of perhaps uh, inappropriate gallows humor with Nick about, you know, how, well, there goes my career representing chefs and <laughs> restaurateurs, <laughs> um, you know, as, as thank God, you know, Grant survived it and the treatment that he received from Dr. Vokes and his team at the, uh, at the University of Chicago took hold and he was in full remission within seven months. And that, of course, begat a memoir deal. 
you know, which right. became Life on the Line, the memoir deal. And I got to do that book deal. And that was my entree into the representation of chefs and restaurateurs. And having that as your as, as your entry point, it's like being a music lawyer and having, you know, REM or Radiohead walk in off the street and say, hi, we'd like you to represent us. Yeah. <laughs> it just no, kind of bestows... Yeah, it, it, it bestows top. instantaneous credibility on you for mm-hmm. for no good reason other than you know the association with with these truly groundbreaking business people. No, that's amazing. Yeah, no, they're um, I now um, just side note: Have you been to Alinea since all this is since since this? I would assume you you've dined there now. Um. I dine. I I dine at Alinea and Next and Royster. I think all the the last time I was at any of their restaurants was in October 2018, and I only remember that date because I was actually up there running the Chicago Marathon. And, ah, awesome! And, and Nick and Dagmara, um, as they always have for decades now, just kind of took care of me and and made sure that I got over and got some restorative cocktails at the aviary and um so i haven't been to alinea since they gutted the place after their 10th anniversary um yeah but yeah i've 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 been there i've dined there once before that and i've been to their other restaurants and they now they also now have aviary here and yeah i mean they're yes and i mean we'll get i mean it's also been with with COVID nineteen and what's happening, I've been following what the, you know they switched to doing delivery now, which they I never am intimately did familiar with that. Um, yeah, it's pretty. It's just following what they're doing is pretty amazing. Um, so so that so with um, so so you went on to work with or you've been working with a lot of of other top chefs and all stars and and some. Some who have have been on my show, I've saw in your your longer bio with uh, Richard Blaze and Alan Shia, and um, I have James Kent is coming up. Um, he's gonna he's gonna be coming on here nice. in a couple weeks. So I mean, it seems like how I mean, how did you did this? Did that just launch you into this um, field of working with chefs, and you just kind of followed it? You know. Well, it- Yes, yes and no. So the the next chef that I had the opportunity to work with was was Richard Blaze. But that happened off also by happenstance. Um my wife Lauren and I once you know Lauren knows Nick and Dagmar. I mean we we were at each other's weddings. I mean and, and so once this whole thing with Alinea with the Alinea cookbook took hold we I was like, "Oh my gosh, you know, I've got to uh got to start learning about this industry. And one of the ways that I learn about uh, any industry that I'm working in is I, I, you know, I, I consume it, I get involved and, and top chef was taking off and it was season four and it was in Chicago. And there was a guy, you know, blaze was on there and he was from Atlanta. And so Lauren and I just started watching it. And um, one day we were at a, some fundraiser for uh, an organization in the Jewish community down here. And, Richard Blaze walks in and it's the middle of, of, uh, uh, of top chef season four. And he walks in with a couple of friends of ours who were other restaurateurs and 
Lauren looks over and, and just notices. She goes, oh, my God, that's Richard Blaze. And before I can say, no, please, God, don't, <laughs> she's over and she's saying hi to our friend and she's introducing herself to Chef Blaze and, and she's gesticulating over in my direction. And she must have mentioned Grant and Nick because Richard's eyes lit up and they start motioning over. And next thing you know, I'm talking to Chef Blaze and, and, um, and we're making an appointment to speak with one another. And you, you top, uh, top Chef was still running at the time, and you know he hadn't been a finalist or anything of the sort. Um, and I just kind of stayed in touch. And then it dawned on me that if I'm going to be doing this at some, as some aspect of my career, I should probably get to know my local community. So I started just kind of putting myself out into the local community, you know, with with intention, you know, with a purpose, and trying to get to know the people and the players in in the Atlanta and in the, in the Atlanta scene and in the Southeast yeah. more broadly. And so that became kind of a strategic thing. And Sherry, I mean, you know, this is not like learning tax law or, I mean, not to minimize the, the, the substantive aspect of it, but there are, to me, there are few things in this world that are more enjoyable than dining out, being with friends, being um, uh, you know, eating delicious food and drinking, you know, good wine or what have you. Like that to me is, a, you know, that's my, that's my front, you know, front row at Springsteen. That's my, you know, tickets to Hamilton. Um, or it, it became yeah, that. I... And so it was, it was, it was a, a thoroughly enjoyable uh, enterprise. And, and so I got to know, um, I, I kind of inserted myself into our local community. And so, it, you know, it went from this thing out in Chicago and then it refocused itself on this kind of hyper local level. And then just kind of over the, over the course of time, it expanded to be this somewhat more, this right. practice that is somewhat more national in scope. Yeah, no, I, oh, trust me, I get it. I mean, it's, it's good. To, I mean, this, this industry that, that, this hospitality industry, culinary industry has a lot of perks of it. And it's, yeah, it's not that hard to get to want to do your research on it and go to restaurants and eat well and um, go to events. So what, what, um, I mean, how is it working with celebrity chefs though? What would you say are the challenges of it? Because there could be egos involved, you know, I don't know, you know, and, um, you know, what's the, what's, I guess what's what's I don't want to say the downside, but what's like you know the the more difficult part of it. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I I really don't find any aspect of it difficult per se. Um, I've been very fortunate that for the twenty three years I've been practicing law, um, my the focus of my of a large part of what I do has been the representation of people that are higher profile. Um, so what I what I really enjoy doing, what I really en- enjoy about the uh, about the enterprise is that at the end of the day, it's not just the the, the celebrity chefs. It's not just the, the the higher profile restaurateurs. All of them, um, from the from the you know single location mom and pop uh, operator to the Michelin starred Wunderkinds they're all at the end of the day, they're all artists and they're all business people. And there's very little substantive difference between a, a chef or a restaurateur on the one hand and a, 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 a singer or a rapper or an athlete or a playwright. Um, many of they come from myriad, a, a myriad of backgrounds. They have uh, 
wildly varied educational levels and life experiences. And But everyone has a statement to make and everyone has a dream to pursue and a desire to nourish others at some fundamental level. That That's, that, that's a commonality of experience that I think I, I use to try to inform how I relate to chefs and restaurateurs. Um, and, and, you know, anyone can be trained on the the legal aspect of it. Where I try to add value is in being able to relate to them and their their concerns and their dreams and their fears and their anxieties um, from a from a, a creative and entrepreneurial perspective. So um, the other thing is that I I am really or I try to be really cognizant of the notion that each person's set of circumstances is unique and uniquely important and uniquely value-laden in its own right. You cannot paint by numbers. And even though they may have a commonality of experience in the, in the grand sense, everyone brings their own worldview and their own baggage and their own set of concerns to a particular situation. So I try to be really for lack of a better way of saying it, kind of sensitive to that fact. Yeah, um, I think that 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 makes you, I would say, you know, why or what and the reasons why you're you're good at your job. <laughs> um, that's very that's very kind of you. By by the same token, um, you know, I also try to I, I also try to make sure that I communicate to them that. I know what my role is in on their team. I mean, my role is to be the suit. My job is to do the to do the legal work, to do the heavy yeah. lifting. I do not. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I take some sense of pride in is that I am there as a service provider in much the same way that they are to their guests. Um, you know, I have a, a role to play and a and a function to perform and. You know, I'm going to be the one that's going to be sitting at my desk, you know, plowing through stacks of paper or making the phone calls or whatever it is to help them be, help them actualize who who they are, to help them achieve whatever goal it is that they want to achieve or need to achieve. Let me ask you my question from my last guest on episode 247. I had on Elizabeth McCall. She's the assistant master distiller of Woodford Reserve premium small batch bourbon whiskey based in Kentucky. So she wants to know, um, to be a legal person representing such a diverse group, what do you find yourself going to battle for the most? Is it social media posts as there may be so many landmines and ways people can get in trouble or, and how do you navigate through that and work, work with, with such a diverse group? That's actually a really great question and a, a thought-provoking one at that. Um, I, I think as a as a general proposition, the thing that we are most often asked to address, not in terms of of, of a, a a particular set of circumstances or what have you, but just kind of as a as an overall philosophical um, goal, is deals with issues of ownership and control, whether it's uh, creative control or culinary control or commercial control. And um, because oftentimes, particularly with, with chefs and restaurateurs, or particularly with chefs, um, 
their first deals are deals that they enter into largely out of desperation. You know, it's their first opportunity. They more often than not, 99 times out of 100, they're the, the the creative professional is egregiously undercapitalized because you know they're cooks at the end of the day and and so the person or the company that is offering them the opportunity to have their own shop or to you know or, or to lead a kitchen or what have you the, the 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 relative leverage of the parties is so out of whack that they just sign whatever is in front of them um so oftentimes I, we're dealing with issues of how do you either gain that from inception or how do you um, how do you rest that back or or make the relationships more more balanced um, you know how do we get them so that they're out in front of issues and driving issues rather than reacting to it um, and being and being and being able to do so in a way that's re- reflective of their individual values so you know, ownership and control, it, it also deals with, you know, how you're portrayed on, on social media, how you're portrayed um, anytime there's a use of your name and likeness or anytime there's a use of your intellectual property or whether or not your creations even constitute your own intellectual property. So those are the sorts of things that, um, that I think are common to all of the various constituencies that I represent, whether they're chefs or, or recording artists or, or, you know, actors or, or, uh, playwrights or what have you. Great. Um, yeah, makes sense. Okay. So let's take a little break and we'll come back and we will play my speed round game and then we'll talk about, uh, what's happening in the industry and with COVID-19. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Steve Sidman. He's of counsel at Carlton Fields. And um, are, we're going to play my speed round game, Steve. Are, are you ready for this? I, I think so. I mean, I stretched out. <laughs> I think you're ready. And I think you know how this works. I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference. I am a fan and frequent listener. I know the drill. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? 
hmm. I'm gonna have to go with chef's counter. Tipping or all inclusive charge? All inclusive charge now and forever. Ooh, wow, had <laughs> a firm, firm, firm answer on that one. Yep. <laughs> Good to know. Okay, how about Top Chef or American Idol? <laughs> um. Wow. I don't know if you watch that one. Well, I'm going to find out. Top Chef or American Idol? <laughs> well, I'm going to I'm going to go with Top Chef, but I I have I have uh, deep personal experience with both franchises. I had a feeling you might say that. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Okay, being in a cover band with Nick Kakonis or working on his first book deal. Ooh. Oh boy, um, you know. I'm going to say being in a cover band because that was the prime mover for the next 30 some odd years of my life. And what did, what did Nick play or is he, I'm thinking he's guitar for some reason. Yes. Yes. Nick played okay. guitar. And did you guys both sing or no singing? Oh God. No, no. I, I sang, I, I sang backups, uh, occasional lead, um, Nick, uh, as they say in the music business, Nick couldn't hear thunder. I mean, just uh, as I mean, God bless the guy. He can do m so very many things. Singing is not one of those things. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, good to know. Okay. Last two, cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Atlanta? Wait, Manhattan, uh, Manhattan or Atlanta? Or or Brooklyn. I put Brooklyn, oh, Brooklyn. in it because our Heritage Radio studio is in Brooklyn. Um, well, I lived in Manhattan for the early part of my career, um, but I was born in North Carolina. My, both my daughters were born and raised here in Atlanta. I'm going to have to go with Atlanta. All right, cool. That's the game. I knew you. I had a feeling that was fun. That was, a, that was a long one. <laughs> No, well, that's, I put in my, you know, I have my standard ones, but I have my, my surprise ones. So uh, you, it was thoroughly enjoyable. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Okay. So industry news, um, you know, over the past few weeks, it's I, the only thing to talk about really is what's happening in the industry um, sure. with the coronavirus and, and um, how, how we're dealing um, and what's happening. And, you know, I want, I want to hear about, you know, what, what, what you're doing with your, um, uh, you know, how, how it's affected your business and, uh, your your clients. Um, and I also picked out an article that was in the New York Times a couple days ago. Um, and it, the title was Dumped Milk, Smashed Eggs, Plowed Vegetables, Food Waste of the Pandemic. With restaurants, hotels, and schools closed, many of the nation's largest farms are destroying millions of pounds of fresh goods that they can no longer sell. This was by David Yaffe, Bellani, and Michael Corkery. And this was just, it's just sad. I, I don't, it's, um, it just, uh, you know, showing that all these farms have so much extra crops now that they're having to waste what they've, what they have because there's no, there's no place for it to go because all the restaurants are closed and um, it just put, I don't know, put it this, I mean, I knew it was happening, but reading this was just, uh, 
it's heartbreaking. I had I had the same reaction. I read the article when it came out, um, and it has you know, predictably made the rounds of you know people in our in our business. And I, as I said, I had the same reaction that you did. It, it, what it what it really drove home for me, Sherry, was how truly interconnected all of the aspects of this industry are at a level that I really hadn't given much consideration to in some time. Um, you don't really think about how dependent upon these major institutions like, you know, schools and hotels, how truly dependent on those institutions, all of America's farmers and, and vendors and purveyors in the food industry are and how literally perishable a lot of the goods are um and it it was it really kind of knocked me back in my seat to think about how much not only just the the waste of the food and the inability to get it to market or to get it to outlets where it can truly serve the most vulnerable constituencies in our country. But it also causes you to think about you know, kind of the more macro economic aspects of it and the impact of farm subsidies and the, and the impact of pandemic response uh, protocols and all of these things and just how broadly the ripple effects and unfortunately how potentially devastating the ripple effects of all of these things are going to be in for how long. Um, and, and it is, it's heartbreaking. And it also, I think should be viewed as a, as kind of a, a, a call to action from a, a wide selection of people in the industry to find a way, because it's not uh, while, while obviously workers within the restaurant industry specifically are going to be extraordinarily hard hit you you don't really hear nearly as much about the impact on the small independent farms um it's not receiving nearly the coverage that it should and and i say that because it goes to the fundamental issue of our food supply and fundamental issues of of poverty and and health and well-being of you know, major contributors to the GDP of this country. Um, yes, that that article really, really had a profound impact on how I have been viewing the the truly uh, just dramatic set of circumstances that that the world finds itself in right now. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's just we're not I don't know, you know, there's a part of this article saying like, you know, they've donated to food banks and, you know, but but it's like the food banks aren't set up to, you know, they have limited amount of refrigerators and volunteers like the abundance. Exactly. And and when you I don't know, you start to think about the coffee shops or just, you know, the amount of milk that all the coffee shops that you're around the country that they use. And you don't, if you don't have, they're no longer 
taking in that supply. I mean, it's just, it's just the quantity and then not having systems to be able to distribute it. Um, But you're right. It's completely, everything is intertwined together. And, you know, I know, um, I know uh, Farmer Lee Jones from the chef's garden and they switched to home delivery, which they never did. And I got this box from them, um, which I've, eaten through and got me cooking vegetables, which is amazing, but like the most amazing fresh farm products um, can be delivered to you. And and they're switching to this customer base, but it's still like, I don't know the amount of chefs and restaurateurs that they've supplied their products to, you know, they have to, you know, figure out how to, I don't know if there's enough consumers to, to order this. Well, that's, and that's, and, and that was the point that really drove it home for me was that part of the story that talked about the impact of a, of a single Starbucks or a Starbucks region. And if they're being like like the Starbucks at the top of my street here in Atlanta is shut down until May, they're, they're reconfiguring the interior so that, so that physical distancing will be more achievable. You think about if if a particular Starbucks or a set of Starbucks shops isn't ordering milk and the impact just on that one right. dairy farm or that one consortium of dairy farms or, you know, or a, a school's not in session anymore. And so their cafeteria is not taking milk deliveries or egg deliveries or chicken deliveries or what have you. And no amount of home delivery, no no matter how robust a CSA program is, for example, it's just not going to be able to take on the volume of stuff that has to be moved in order for the farms to have a viable market, the farmers to have a viable market for their goods. And it was was just gut wrenching to read that, to read that article. It was was truly tragic. It was, it's I mean, it's good. It's bringing it to our attention and hopefully, you know, we can find solutions um, moving forward. Uh, what what have been the major concerns or the work maybe that uh, your focus has been on with your clients um, dealing with with the this pandemic that we're in? Sure. So, I mean, as far as my practice is concerned, things have, have kind of slowed noticeably and I think predictably. But but we're st- we're still busy in terms of what our clients have been asking us to do. The, the the assignments and the requests have been kind of all over the map, and we still have some restaurant projects going forward while others have stopped. You know, I have, I represent a chef who uh, wrote a book, the, the, and the life story rights had been, um, had been optioned. You know, that deal is still going forward. There are some TV production deal that's, deals that are still going forward. Um, but much of my work has predictably shifted to helping clients work their way through the pandemic and its impact and the myriad of legal and business issues that have arisen because of it. So obviously, you know, CARES Act stuff to be sure, but also dealing with the impact of the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, the American with Disabilities Act, directives from the Department of Labor and the EEOC and the IRS and the Departments of Agriculture and the FDA. And, you know, and not to mention all of the various corollaries at the state and county and local levels. Um, so, each each client set of circumstances and set of of questions has varied on a client by client basis. I, if I had to kind of predict or, or describe it, my general approach, the general approach strategically is to kind of help the clients stay in business, 
help them stay open if they can, help their deals proceed in some way, shape, or form. Um, You know, and this is just the legislative aspect of it. I mean, we have entire teams. Carlin Fields has 350 attorneys across the country, which is a medium-sized firm, but we have entire teams dedicated to just dealing with the interpretation of and and helping clients win their way through the legislative aspect of it. Just not sexy at all, but is absolutely the most yeah. necessary thing right now. Um, you know, um, it, it's dealing with those sorts of things is crucial for a, a businesses or, a, you know, an individual client survival at a fundamental level, both short term and long term. But the legislative rollout of the CARES Act and the PPP, you know, the, 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 the payroll protection uh, plan um, has been bumpy. I mean, I mean, being generous, it's being it's been bumpy at best. Um, and it's almost set up a market where there are there are multiple constituencies that are almost that are competing for limited funds um so that has been a large part of what i've been doing and on on a client by client basis kind of figuring out what is best for that particular client under that particular client's set of circumstances yeah and it's changing all the time i think uh i'm like thinking your clients are lucky to have you um to to guide them through because it's uh, you're yeah. you're very very kind to say that um i no, i, I mean feel it, <laughs> I, well and and i feel that i am the most fortunate guy alive because you know my clients are the lifeblood of my professional life yeah. um and i don't take that for granted i mean none of us does you know, um, you know, but it, it has caused a lot of navel gazing and a lot of soul searching and reassessing of one's values and trying to figure out what the hell we're all going to be doing when we get when we emerge from the tunnel, you know? Yeah, which is who knows? We it's it's yeah, it's it's I don't know. Time will tell. Yes. But- it's um yeah it's uh it's really crazy these unpredictable times that we're we're in right now um but um let's take another break and come back i will do my solo dining delivery experience and we'll have the final question this is on the industry on heritage radio network The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively, this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60 of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide micro-grants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. 
You can donate today at jamesbeard.org slash relief. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining delivery experience. So this week, it's from the Sushi Lab. Here's the rundown. The location, 132 West 47th Street in Midtown, Manhattan. The concept, intimate sushi bar at the Sanctuary Hotel serving creative Japanese fare. The owners, Hank Freed and Brandon Freed, and the chef is Frankie Chen. So why did I order in? Well, because I've been cooking mostly for myself and, you know, I really felt I I wanted a little sushi. Um, and this was a place, uh, Sushi Lab, that was on my list to try. Um, and I'm in their delivery zone. So I figured, why not? Why not try it? I delivery. So my experience, um, I ordered um, on Seamless app on around 5.30 on Monday night. It was a good day to be staying in actually because it was um, it was pretty cold and rainy out that day. Um, and uh, I greatly appreciate delivery workers for all they're doing through good weather and bad. Um, but yeah, my delivery came when they estimated it to, which was around six o'clock. So it only took a half hour. Um, which was amazing. Uh, my doorman let me know uh, when it arrived, and I went downstairs in my building and picked up a delivery bag that had my name on it waiting for me. So what did I get? I had the chef's selection of 10 signature pieces. It came with miso soup and a six-piece cut roll. Uh, my take, it was great. It was, you know, omakase at home uh, delivery, I can't say it's the same as when you're sitting at a chef's counter and being handed each piece one at a time. But um, my my order came with these 10 beautifully delicious, fresh pieces of fish, and um, they had little unique toppings on them. It's kind of a little more creative uh, style of omakase. And the pieces included salmon, uni, scallop, fatty tuna, salmon roe, and the little rolls had the same. Um, there was wasabi and ginger. It had, you know, it was the and the, you know, it had it had everything you would have if you were at the restaurant. But I was home, um, and the soup was really nice. It was a very flavorful miso, so it was it was a nice meal. Um, Ambiance, comfort of my home, perfect for sushi lovers. Interesting tidbit. So the success of a high-end, affordable omakase concept called Sushi by Boo led the owners to open this newish place, which opened um, last February in 2019. Uh, Personal fun fact, I have gone to Sushi by Boo before, and their concept is 12 pieces for $50 in 30 minutes. And they kind of started this, this trend a bit of this, like, a little more affordable sushi um where you're in and out and uh, you you get the deliciousness with with, with not uh, not as expensive as all the $300 omakases that we typically have in New York. Uh, so the cost of Sushi Lab, my ordering in was $45. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. I tried in-house or order in again, and their website is sushilab.nyc. So there you go. Um, have you had sushi in this crisis, Steve? <laughs> I have. Um, we, as, as a family, kind of made it made a made it a priority to try to order out as frequently as we can from 
local independent restaurants and yes um yeah it, it, it's really just the way you know, getting back to your pr tip you know the way the businesses down here in atlanta have been able to pivot and and move to delivery or 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 takeout you know contactless takeout has been truly nothing short of inspiring so yes sushi was part of the bill yeah. affair no, it's true. I, I've had a, a sushi client, um, Sushi Ishikawa, which um, is on the Upper East Side, and they were just omakase, and they switched to doing takeout and delivery in their zone, and now they're just doing takeout. And um, I, you know, maybe I'll, when the weather keeps getting warmer, I'll walk, I'll walk over there and, and get their takeout. Um, it's a little, you know, it's, I'm not exactly that close by, but um they're, I think, doing really well with it, um, but they were able to, yeah, pivot and do that. So, yep. um, yeah, and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm staying, I'm eating in a lot, but I want to support restaurants as well, you know, the local stuff. So, um, okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guests are Danielle Chang and William Lee, and Danielle is the founder and CEO of Lucky Rice, which is creating exper experiential content that cultivates and celebrates the food and cultures of Asia. And she's also the TV host and creator of Lucky Chow, which is a PBS series which explores Asian cuisine's impact on the American food culture. And William Lee is also a co-host and co-producer of Lucky Chow. He is the founder and principal of Berkshire Strategy Group and a contributing editor at El Decor and Town and Country. Um, so I'm excited to have them on. Um, what would what can you ask a question for them, Steve? Sure. Well, uh, thanks for teeing this one up because I am a huge fan of of what Danielle and William have built uh, of of Lucky Chow as a show, and I'm also a proud owner of the Lucky Rice Cookbook. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Clarkson Potter just does an amazing job generally on their on their cookbooks, and that one is absolutely no exception. Um, so, I guess my question for them is whether or not. Well, I'll just ask them directly, Danielle William. Uh, do you see yourselves having to make fundamental shifts in the Lucky Rice business model and and its goals in the post COVID nineteen world? That's my question. It's a great question. And, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I, one thing I haven't really talked that much yet about on this show is, is the events and the festivals. And that is a big part of our industry as well. And sure. I frequented many. Um, and that, yeah, I, I'm assuming there is going to have to be change. <laughs> Uh, and in new times, but I will ask them. So thank you for that. And um, I also want to thank welcome. you. I know, you know, so much has changed since then, but um, back in January, I had my host summit plus social conference and you were there, you came. <laughs> yes, I was. And it was, I mean, I could not believe that that was the, the maiden voyage of, of that event you uh deserve all the kudos and all the accolades it was an absolutely professional absolutely informative and thoroughly entertaining uh day i am truly it, one of my great sorrows is that i didn't actually get to come up and shake your hand and tell you that personally i i will 
thank you for saying that. You, I mean, hearing that from you, you know, you've, I wouldn't even say made my day. Like you made my whole, you know, everything because, <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's, you know, I put this thing together and I'd never done a conference before. And, um, and then to, ha- you know, to, to receive feedback like, like yours is, is, made all that work worthwhile and um and i'm sorry we didn't get to meet in person too um next next time and we'll have to see you know how how everything plays out with with the future of doing events but um i hope there is a next time (laughs) there will be i I, look you know you and i have been doing this a long time and um you know things will have to i think unquestionably things will have to change Fundamentally, but it, it is my hope that, uh, and my sincere belief that it's going to be ultimately for the better. You know, we'll have to things. Will, people will have to just pivot, and you know, I think that processes will be streamlined and, and overhead will be reduced. To, and I think maybe it'll help us synthesize things to their essence. Um, but you, uh, you know, in that one day thing, I, I know what it takes to put on a, a conference and to put on, you know, a live event, uh, you know, from a, from a, a technical and a planning and a strategic perspective, you, you nailed it. Wow. You should Thank be very you. proud. Thank you. Now I know what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, but that's no. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for joining me today. I mean, oh, Sherry, truly. I mean, this has been one of the absolute highlights of, of my career. I mean that in all sincerity. Thank you. Wow. For having me. Wow, amazing. Well, I wish you the best. Well, you know, you we'll as well. have to share a meal together at some point when, when restaurants reopen. And um, yeah, and, and look, we can we can we can do so virtually in the meantime. Oh, that we could. I mean, everyone, we could Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So um, thank you. I wish you the best and, and your clients. Much thank you. Safety and health to you and yours as well, Sherry. Thank you. My guest today has been Steve Sidman. He's the, of counsel at Carlton Fields, and their website is carltonfields.com, and you can follow him on social media at Sidman Law. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. So um, we're taking a little break at Heritage Radio uh, for you know, um, until our next season starts. So my next show with Danielle and William is going to be on Wednesday, May 6th. In the meantime, I'm starting something new, uh, starting tomorrow. I'm going to be doing, uh, Instagram live interviews. And, um, this is, if you go on Instagram at all industry at tomorrow, when, uh, Thursday, April 16th at 3 PM, I'm going to be doing my first, uh, talk with Stephen Kamali of Hospitality House and the Chef Agency, and he has a new initiative for restaurants amid COVID-19 called the Restaurant Network. So we're going to be talking all about that. And, you know, for my first one, I thought Stephen would be a great guest for me to have on, not just because of all the things he's involved in, but Stephen was actually my very first guest on All in the Industry back in 2014 when I started. So, um, 
Therefore, you know, Stephen is going to is is the appropriate person to be talking to tomorrow. So um, again, that's at all industry on Instagram stories, and it's going to be an Instagram live. Uh, thank you to my engineer, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Steve Sidman. Uh, wishing you and everyone all the best. I'm Sherry Bayer. Be safe, be well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.